Welcome to Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Green, and in this series, we will talk to the editors and experts featured in Selected Readings in General Surgery, a publication that highlights highly relevant and practice-changing information from the world's most prominent medical journals. As busy professionals, we don't always have time to read the most current studies. The goal of this podcast is to bring that information to you, providing key takeaways, insights, and perspectives from leading authorities in all surgical specialties and multidisciplinary areas that affect the surgical patient. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. I want to welcome you to uh, Surgical Readings. Uh, I'm Dr. Rick Green, your host, and today I'm just absolutely delighted not to have one, two, but we have three very, very uh, good discussants uh, on our our first uh, section on trauma. And uh, we have Dr. Jeffrey Kirby, who is the Division Director of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery in the Department of Surgery at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And also, uh, Dr. Kirby serves as the Chair of the Committee on Trauma for the American College of Surgeons. We have Dr. Sabrina Goddard, who's also an Assistant Professor uh, and uh, Assistant Trauma Medical Director at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And it's a pleasure to have Sabrina with us. And finally, we have Dr. Zane Hashmi, who's also uh, Assistant Professor in the Department of Surgery and the Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery at the University of Alabama. So I'd like to welcome all three of you uh, to this uh, edition of Surgical Readings. Uh, first of all, I want to congratulate uh, you as associate editors for a, just a marvelous uh, selected readings in general surgery on trauma. And, and Jeff, I'm going to take the opportunity uh, to call on you, especially with your, uh, with your title as, as COT chair. I love milestones, and I, I was reading uh, in, in selected readings that we really are at a milestone year. Uh, because the Emergency Medical Services Development Act was, uh, was actually written in 1973. So we're at the 50th anniversary of this particular milestone in trauma care. And I just wanted to ask you if you could briefly say, as COT chair, what do you see as the, uh, the impact of this particular study that took trauma out of the DOT, Division on uh, Department of Transportation, into HHS, health and human services. What's been the impact of that particular legislation? Well, I think that was uh, obviously, as you mentioned, a landmark legislation back in a time when, if you remember, motor vehicular vehicular mortality was was really high. Uh, And, uh, you know, the COT and others really focused on a public health approach uh, to addressing uh, motor vehicle mortality. And certainly this was a key piece in that. And having that legislation uh, certainly amplified the message about the need for EMS services uh, and uh, really it got got the EMS established at the state level uh, to uh, to push the development of uh, pre-hospital care and EMS uh, across the country. So certainly had a huge impact on uh, the development of EMS, uh, really um, uh, helped us with our message around the training that was necessary. And certainly the COT has been involved with that uh, for a number of years. Uh, so um, I, I would say that uh, the, uh, the uh, impact has been uh, incredible and uh, certainly 
the reason the reasoning behind the uh, legislation uh, was uh, uh, was uh, certainly uh, sound, and um, uh, we have uh, uh, taken the uh, uh, mission uh, for uh, behind that legislation, and and have uh, certainly uh, it's been very successful. Well, I want to I want to congratulate you and your COT colleagues on accreditation, uh, all of the oversight you've done, and. Uh, Zane, I want to ask you a couple of things. Um, we talk about quality assessment of trauma centers, which is extremely important. Uh, I'm lucky to work in a, a division one or a level one trauma center here in Charlotte. Um, and I wonder, first of all, uh, as we think about quality, one of the things that you point out in the selected readings is the role of NISQIP. NISQIP, of course, started in the VA system, and then, of course, the American College of Surgeons took over NISQIP. What's been the role in the surgical world of trauma uh, for NISQIP? How has that helped in the quality assessment that we're looking at? Well, thank you for inviting me. And, um, you know, with regards to the with regards to NISQIP and um, how it translated into trauma care, I think it has a direct correlation. Um, it, as you mentioned, it started in the VA uh, where it was looking at more elective surgical populations and assessing hospital level um, uh, benchmarking to assess for differential uh, quality assessments between centers. Um, and that approach has been translated to essentially form the backbone of the Trauma Quality Improvement Program, which is a flagship program by the uh, College and Committee on Trauma. Uh, and that has really proven instrumental in how we today um, look at how trauma centers perform. Um, and I can tell you at, at our center, we, we, looked at, we look at that information very closely and we make actionable changes based off of that. It, it gives you a sort of a dashboard of how your center is performing relative to other centers on very select uh, and uh, sub-categorized uh, you know, data uh, points to make sure that you're really drilling down to actionable information and uh, enacting change. So I think it has been a tremendous uh, achievement, uh, all formed on the backbone of uh, uh, achievements uh, made through NISQIP. So let me ask you, uh, where can our listeners go to find out how their center uh, compares with other centers, either in the state of Alabama, the state of North Carolina, or wherever? Is there a site where they can go and find this information? So as part of participating in TQIP, uh, that information is available to all TQIP participating centers. Uh, and I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Kirby, it is also available uh, on request uh, uh, if you participate for a particular year to get that comparison. Uh, but for all centers that are ACS verified trauma centers, uh, TQIP participation is essentially mandatory. Um, and that basically uh, feeds into the verification cycle uh, for trauma centers, uh, and it, it it is a very standardized data product that you know verification uh, metrics are based off of and targets are based off of. Jeff, you want to comment on that? Uh, yeah, the, the trauma quality improvement program uh, has uh, participation from both ACS verified centers and and as well as non ACS verified centers. So it's a very robust program. Probably. Uh, we have about 550 verified centers around the country, and we bet have over now uh, 900 centers participating in our trauma quality improvement program. So uh, those benchmarking programs are, are very uh, valuable um, and a really cornerstone of, uh, of improving trauma quality across the country. Well said. Uh, 
Dr. Hashmi, let me ask you too about another concept and that's trauma registries. Um, they're so important. I wonder if you could comment on the role of registries, what we learn from registries and what's the future of trauma registries. Yeah, if you take a step back and look at places where you don't have a registry and you're trying to enact a registry, it it makes it, you know, it, it's, it's a stark comparison between places that have acted and have mature trauma registries. And what it does is it actually allows you to dive back into your data and look at really how you are performing on, on select conditions, on select injury patterns, and um, not only perform QI, but also perform uh, research into future aspects of improving that. So in, in the US and through the TQIP, um, most centers have a robust registry which feeds into uh, data into TQIP, as well as allows institutional research efforts to uh, pursue novel and innovative strategies of improving trauma care. Excellent, excellent, well said. Let me transition now into the trauma patient. And uh, let's focus a little. You, you use the term in the selected readings uh, of under and over triage. Uh, triage is so important, of course, in, in how we handle the trauma patient. What, what's the definition of under triage and over triage? So in, in, in trauma, the, the idea of triage is really to identify that seriously injured patient uh, who needs specialized trauma center care. Uh, from among a larger cohort of patients who have uh, perhaps minor injuries or moderate injuries who can be taken care of in non-trauma hospitals. So it goes back to that whole concept of getting the right patient to the right place at the right time. And in that context, um, if you look at under triage, it is the percentage of seriously injured patients missed by field triage processes and transported to non-trauma hospitals. And this really is associated with increased mortality. Um, in, in modern trauma systems, we like to keep this percentage less than 5%. And when we look at over triage, that is the percentage of patients with minor to moderate uh, injuries identified by field tri triage criteria as having serious injuries and transported to trauma centers uh, unnecessarily, something that could be potentially avoided, uh, representing overuse of limited resources and causing inefficiencies in the system. And that target is, uh, kept at less than 35%. So it's it's biased in favor of making sure that we do not miss seriously injured patients. That's excellent. Uh, let me ask you though, uh, is this site specific? In other words, we know for the patient with a head injury, uh, neurosurgical trauma, there's, there's certain applications of where to take the patient to in a regional center, for instance. How about orthopedic trauma? How about GU trauma? Do, how, have we gotten down to that granularity to say, how triage should be done? I think that some of that is incorporated. If you look at the new uh, field triage guidelines that were published in 2022, um, they have certain elements of that, uh, but it also depends on regional capabilities, as you said. Uh, and that is something that has been left to regional trauma systems to decide and uh, make sure that uh, they understand that uh, that those limitations and constraints of that regional trauma system uh, and has been left open to uh, judgment for experts within that region. So Zane, before I ask Sabrina a few thoughts, uh, I want to ask you about special populations. Uh, we talk about inequities. We talk about 
access to health care. There's one particular population that you talk about in the uh, selected readings, and that's the geriatric population. Could you comment on that? What are the special issues for our older patients? I mean, all of us in this United States are having uh, are getting older. The population is getting older. What should we know about trauma care for the elderly? So there are a couple of things uh, when we look at trauma care for the elderly. We know that uh, prior triage guidelines um, how they were being used and implemented resulted in significant amount of under triage for older patients. And some of that stemmed from uh, uh, you know, older patient physiology, which was different uh, compared to uh, younger patient cohorts. So for example, there is a study that we quoted in the selected readings talking about how hypotension is defined slightly differently in the elderly cohort, uh, where systolic blood pressure less than 110 might be considered as hypotensive. And if you look at the updated version of the National Triage Guidelines, uh, that particular patient population has been separated out and patients age 65 or older, um, if they have systolic blood pressure less than, 100 and, less than 110, uh, that meets criteria to be transported to a, a trauma center. Um, you know, apart from that, you know, if you look at overall in terms of where we need to be, uh, there's a lot of under triage in this elderly population for, for this reason, for the physiological reason, as I described, but, but for other reasons as well, uh, in terms of patients wanting to seek care closer to their homes. Um, and so, you know, if you look at overall trends, approximately half of uh, the elderly population is under triage to a, a lower level or a non-trauma center, which is something that uh, is actively being worked on and researched uh, to improve that percentage. Those are excellent points. Uh, thank you very much. Dr. Goddard, I'd like to transition now to maybe uh, the concept of injury prevention. So Sabrina, this is, of course is wrapped up into politics. We recognize that, but in the, in the selected readings, uh, you as associate editor and your colleagues talk about specific areas uh, of, of injury prevention. And I wonder if you would just briefly mention those areas and what, what can we do about that and what's the importance of these particular concepts? Absolutely. Um, again, thank you for the invitation to uh, join this podcast. Um, but tying back to kind of what you referenced at the beginning of the podcast with Dr. Kirby and this original public health approach, I think is really the focus um, of this uh, injury prevention status, you know, whenever Dr. Stewart and Dr. Bulger commented on the medical summit on firearm injury prevention, one of the things they talk about is these conflicting narratives, right? And kind of embracing this common American narrative to particularly um, approach what we understand is can sometimes be a very politically charged uh, arena. Um, so some of the, you know, obviously in the past, there's been extensive efforts through um, the Department of Transport and uh, motor vehicle uh, death reduction, et cetera. Uh, and I think the current realm of where the future is going with this is more on um, firearm injury prevention, um, mental health uh, and violence prevention. All of those really you can't discuss one without essentially encompassing the other. Um, but what we, you know, there's different realms of prevention. Primary prevention is obviously preventing that from ever occurring in the first place. That falls into the realms of education, engineering, legislation, et cetera. And many of these articles that we reference in the uh, selected readings 
specifically discuss this public health approach or this primary injury prevention. Whereas secondary and tertiary then fall into the realm of the trauma surgeon um, in the hospital on minimizing the morbidity and the mortality of that injury and maximizing recovery back into society. So some of the specific recommendations that have come out in the recent uh, years have been on, you know, trauma center-based violence prevention programs, recognizing that we need to, once, you know, obviously using this concept of the teachable moment in our trauma patients, once we find these patients with high risk um, for, you know, whether it's mental illness, um, firearm violence, uh, et cetera, that we should address these um, and implement these mental health resources or violence prevention resources when we have them um, uh, as captive audiences. Um, other things, uh, community outreach that happens, you know, obviously, uh, you know, firearm storage, safety, education in the public domain, et cetera, um, all are critical to helping uh, potentiate these sorts of interventions. Well, I'm so glad that you you mentioned there's a public health issue, and these are issues that, of course, the uh, the COT has been very much involved in. The college has taken a lead in this, and I I think you've beautifully stated uh, where we are with that. And again, the selected readings uh, has has so much in there. Let's let's turn to pre-hospital management. This is something that certainly in my career uh, uh, over the last 45 years of in surgery has changed greatly. Uh, and I wondered if you could talk a little uh, specifically about where we stand with certain concepts. Obviously, what we do in the field, what's done in the field before getting to the trauma center is so important. So what about intubation? What about use of crystalloids versus whole blood? Is this something that uh, we should think about in the pre-hospital setting? Uh, where, do we, where do we stand with these concepts? Absolutely. Um, so in regards to what has changed in the pre-hospital setting over the past several years. Obviously, I think the biggest domain for this is going to be hemorrhage control and resuscitation, as you as you referenced. We've really moved away from crystalloid as much as possible and trying to implement at least pre-hospital blood transfusions, if not whole blood um, pre-hospital transfusion. Obviously, there are limitations and capabilities amongst different uh, pre-hospital providers in the in the United States and state-to-state -state variability and even, you know, individual um, variability within those, but definitely a shift towards that. Um, there's been working groups on discussing how we can best implement those and providing recommendations on things such as product waste, et cetera, and um, circulation of those products. Other things in addition to blood product resuscitation, I think um, we all know that we're familiar with the CRASH-2 trial um, where TXA kind of really made its landmark um, where we found that about, you know, we had a significant reduction in all-cause mortality for those patients receiving T TXA pre-hospital, specifically, you know, 90, within 90 minutes of injury. So I know many institutions across the nation have adjusted to adopting TXA, especially in that pre-hospital domain. Other things that seem like they might be from the, you know, past, but have become more and more commonly used. I think this is mostly thanks to efforts of Stop the Bleed um, is pre-hospital tourniquet use. Um, so there's been a massive effort through the ACS to get, um, you know, not just providers, but, you know, the, the lay person trained on tourniquet use, et cetera. And we know that this helps to decrease the amount of product transfusions 
um, pre-hospital as well as improved mortality. Um, so those are some of the big uh, efforts in hemorrhage control that have happened in the in the most recent years. Yeah, beautifully stated. Uh, certainly the literature and the literature you cite uh, talks about the importance of whole blood. The, the term low titer type O whole blood is used. Could you define low titer for me? Essentially, it's uh, blood that's collected from donors who have an antibody titer test that's showing that they have low anti-A and anti-B antibodies. So the thoughts is that it would have a lower likelihood of transfusion reaction. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much. Let's turn to some specific issues because there are two specific issues in, in this uh, first part of selected readings that, uh, that you and your colleagues talk about. One is pelvic trauma. And I, I want to uh, ask you, uh, for the patient with pelvic trauma, we know classifications exist, and that's well stated in the selected readings. Uh, what are the diagnostic procedures that the trauma center should use to define the the uh, the classification of the pelvic trauma injury? So, first of all, as uh, you know, Dr. Hashmi pointed out earlier, there are it is part the severe pelvic trauma falls under that national trauma or national guideline for field triage. So, it's one of those patients that hopefully we're getting to. Uh, you know, a high level center um, because of the additional capabilities that's required. So I think the interventions performed really depends on your institutional capabilities. Obviously, um, pelvic binders, um, product resuscitation, those kind of things are going to be the, the forefront of pelvic trauma. These are specifically for the severe or, quote, open book pelvis fractures, where you're worried about that disruption of the venous system posteriorly. Um, but for those patients that ha are at a center with capabilities, generally the one of the first approaches is going to be angiography for those patients requiring on, ongoing transfusion. Um, other surgical management options are going to be external fixation by our orthopedic colleagues or preperitoneal packing by ourselves. Um, you know, Denver has published a lot on the preperitoneal packing as well. Um, additional things that have come into the more recent um, Data has been the use of uh, Reboa. Obviously, um, zone three is what we're talking about. So down lower on the aorta so that you decrease the amount of um, perfusion complications. Um, but there has been data showing specifically in pelvic trauma, if you're particularly at somewhere that you can't get um, rapid hemorrhage control, that you can use Reboa as an adjunct um, to help decrease that um, active hemorrhage in zone three. You know, I was, I was fascinated uh, in your discussion in surgical readings. You talk about the role of surgeons doing angioembolization rather than IR people. Could you uh, talk a little about that? So I think it's another one of those where um, it really depends on your facility's capabilities. Um, I know, you know, obviously part of the verification process is that you have, we have to have a 60 minute um activation to stick time for those patients that we activate IR for specifically with these unstable pelvic fractures. So um, in these populations, whether it if your IR folks aren't able to get in um, within that time frame, many institutions have adopted to a um, surgeon at least main, uh, getting access on the arterial vasculature um, and whether they actually perform the embolization themselves would be um, institution dependent, but I would say the majority are likely um, at least getting access while their IR colleagues get into the hospital to make this uh, 60 minute response time for hemorrhage control. Well, maybe I'll ask Dr. Kirby uh, 
Jeff, are, are trauma fellowships routinely teaching uh, techniques of uh, angioembolization to their fellows? Uh, currently, that's that's not uh, not the standard. Although there's a lot of discussion about uh, trying to incorporate some of this training into those those fellowship programs, uh, you know, particularly some of the more extended uh, two year fellowship programs that we have, uh, ideally would incorporate some of that uh, vascular training, that endovascular training into the uh, into the uh, the uh, curriculum of the fellowship, not standard right now, but certainly a, a point of a lot of discussion in the trauma community about how to approach uh, that issue and certainly have a couple of centers in particular that are uh, doing this as a routine uh, through their trauma service. Excellent. Dr. Goddard, I'd like to uh, finally uh, uh, end on the discussion of GU trauma, which I think is important. Um, and I was wondering, um, if you talk a little about the general surgeon who does trauma, there, there obviously need to be facile with certain types of GU trauma. Let's talk about renal injury because that's the most common. Uh, what should the, the general trauma surgeon know about salvaging the kidney uh, in, a, in a renal injury situation? So I think it's a great question regarding salvage because all of the past um, new guidelines regarding uh, renal trauma have actually really made this push towards um, renal salvage and if doing a nephrectomy to really push towards a partial nephrectomy, um, which is uh, different from the past where I would say every trauma surgeon is very comfortable doing a, a, a total nephrectomy, um, but now it's a with this new shift towards learning partial nephrectomies, it's it's encouraged us all to adopt our own techniques and and learn um, in vivo, so to speak. Um, essentially, though, what we know as well is that these high grade renal injuries, just because they have urinary extrav, also does not mean that they mandate operative intervention anymore, um, due to the many percutaneous or cystoscopic techniques that are. Uh, urologic colleagues can offer. So the the days of a high-grade renal injury resulting in a nephrectomy is, is slowly starting to die out. And really the main reason that this would happen would be someone that is unstable from active renal hemorrhage, um, but from the urologic or the um, urinary pelvis standpoint, um, definitely pushing more towards aggressive salvage on these patients. Excellent. Finally, let me ask you, since um regarding pelvic injury, we certainly see injuries to the urethra, especially in men. What is the concept of diagnosis and management that uh, the routine general surgeon who does trauma should know about? So I think any patient that you have a high-grade pelvic injury, my the algorithm should be to perform a, a bedside retrograde urethrogram. So essentially sticking a Foley catheter and doing a, a contrasted study to ensure that there's no um, urethral injury. If no urethral injury, then place a Foley catheter and we're actually doing um, CT cystography as well because we recognize with these high-grade pelvic traumas that there is also a high risk of concomitant bladder injury. And then it goes you know, into operative management. If it's intraperitoneal, then that's something that would warrant exploration, um, you know, by the general surgeon versus the the urologist, depending on um, your institution or comfort level. Um, and then extraperitoneal bladder injuries are obviously going to be managed um, with a couple weeks of fully drainage. 
Um, but that's the the generalized approach to the patient with severe pelvic trauma and concern for urologic injury concomitantly. Thank you so much. Uh, any final comments from the group? You know, the fact that, you know, this this audience is the general surgeons who are reading reading this. I, I don't think we can stress enough the importance of general surgeons uh, to trauma care across the country. Um, you know, we there's we talked about the the equity issues and access to trauma care. Uh, about 30, 40 million people in the U.S. live more than an hour away from a trauma center, a verified trauma center. And so the general surgeon is vitally important uh, for us to achieve our goal of eliminating preventable death and disability from trauma. So I just want to emphasize that point that the general surgeons are part of the overall trauma care uh, team. Uh, and, need, and we would uh, you know, stress that uh, we need them highly engaged in trauma care at their, at their hospital, uh, whether it's a verified center or not. Uh, we need that at high level engagement and that, uh, and that uh, mission being, um, being driven at, at uh, all facilities uh, that have the capacity and capability. Beautifully stated. We've been talking with Dr. Jer Jeffrey Kirby, who's professor of surgery at the University of Alabama and also the uh, chair of the Committee on Trauma of the American College of Surgeons, and his associates, Dr. Sabrina Goddard, assistant professor, and Dr. Mohammed Zain Hashmi, also assistant professor at the University of Alabama. Uh, the three of you have done a splendid job, uh, not only in the selected readings, but also explaining things to our audience. And I wanna thank you for being with us today on surgical readings. Thanks so much. Thank you very That's much for having us. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag SurgicalReadings. You can subscribe to Selected Readings in General Surgery at facs.org slash srgs. Options are available for individuals, institutions, and residents. I'm Dr. Rick Green. Until next time, thank you for listening and learning.